Good morning, it's Laura Hewing. You're joining me for Sociology 9009, which is our seminar on evidence-based policy. In the previous discussion, I talked about different ways in which researchers from the social sciences have tried to construct a sort of hierarchy, if you will, of research that is best suited for informing po public policy making. At the end of the day, when we're talking about research and we're talking about injecting research into public policy, we are talking about evaluations. What, am I, what do I mean? Well, in an ideal world, what we've done is we've run some tests to see whether or not a particular program, policy, or practice would actually work in the real world and then we extrapolate from that. Hopefully we replicate you know, our study over and over. We get evaluate this intervention over and over again and we find, wow, fantastic, it works. It works in a variety of different contexts. Now we go to public policymakers and say, well, guess what? We've, we've got a strong evidence base here. You should therefore change your public policy or your practice, your regulation, and so on. That's the idealized world. In reality, where most of us unfortunately live, uh, it is not that cut and dried. First of all, a lot of policy is not evidence-based. A lot of policy making is only has a very tenuous connection to research. I've seen policy that has been influenced by cherry-picked research. More often than not, though, let's be honest, it's, um, you know, we'll have a couple community forums, of course, people that self-select because they're interested in making change show up. And then the government says, okay, well, we did a national community set of community forums and we're going to go ahead and do what we were always going to do anyway. That's the cynical realist point. In my idealized world in which, you know, we have we have stronger quality, uh, more rigorous, I should say, research. We have an abundance of it. We have extrapolated uh, all the key takeaways about what works, what doesn't work, what kind of conditions you need for it to work, and so on. Yeah, that doesn't happen too often. More often than not, what happens is you get a mass of sometimes often contradictory research that says it works, it doesn't work, it worked kind of a little bit, but some of it's quantitative and we're using this method, some of it's qualitative using this other method. It's a hodgepodge. Well, fortunately for us, there is some researchers out of the UK, and the particular person I'm going to talk about today is Pawson, who's published a couple of books on what he calls the realist approach to evidence-based policy. And that realist approach is based on the fact that knowledge synthesis is a very messy, sticky business. Whenever you make decisions about what, even when you say, okay, well, we're only gonna use randomized control trials, but you only have five randomized control trials, and what if they were all produced out of the same lab? Is that really as good a base, perhaps, as using a mixed methods approach where we've got a whole, like I said, a whole, potage, a whole mass, a whole mess of different types of research and different types of results. Pawson says, no, you got to take the good with the bad. In fact, he argues that the bad can sometimes provide lessons 
in terms of what works, why it works, and why it doesn't work. So that's what we're going to unpack today is this realist approach to evidence-based policy. And the reason for, um, you know, and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit, you know, I tend to like rigorous research, but I, I recognize that that's not always possible. And is some research better than no research when it comes to policymaking? And ultimately, that is a question that we all have to individually decide as researchers. But I do think Pawson has a lot of instructive things to say that we should take on board. Keeping in mind, of course, that this approach is a complete criticism of this idealized version that I've just painted. So let's get cracking. How can we say what works, which is, you know, the focus of evidence-based movements? Well, let's be honest. It not only is it a focus, but it's been the near exclusive focus. We've actually spent a lot less time understanding uh, the causal, how the causal mechanisms actually work in the context that drive successful interventions or kill great program ideas. A guy by the name of Larry Sherman, who is the godfather, if you will, of evidence-based policing, talks about the three T's, testing, sorry, I always screw these up, targeting, testing, and tracking. Targeting, most people are good at identifying a problem. Testing, coming up with an intervention and actually evaluating it to make sure it works, and tracking where he believes everybody goes off the rails, because oftentimes what happens is you do a very quick study, evaluate it, say, oh, you know, pre-test, post-test, um, we did a baseline study, here's our stats, we put the intervention in, and then we did a post-test, oh, look, we got great stats, it shows that we decreased crime or we increased healthcare um, accessibility in this region, and now we're done. And of course, the problem with that is we don't always understand very well the causal mechanisms and, and, as I said, the context in which things work or don't work. And the fact that if you don't track things over time, oftentimes a program that works in the initial short run falls off the rails, derails, and stops working. And because we really don't understand what it is that the intervention is doing and why and how it's doing what it's doing, it can be difficult to pull it back on. And oftentimes this is why major programs like, you know, any national type program that gets rolled out, tremendous success, and then five years later it's, it's killed and everybody goes, oh, well, we knew it wasn't going to work. Well, the realist approach, which, as I say, is most notably associated with Ray Pawson, but also Nick Tilley, um, both sociologists, is a critique of this naive view that all we have to do is focus on outcomes or, worse yet, outputs. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before, but there's a lot of confusion about the difference between outputs and outcomes. Um, let me give you an example, and I'll use it from my own area because it's the area, of course, I know the best. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on upstream approaches to dealing with uh, crime, criminal activities. So you've got a young offender, and this kid has a terrible home life, might be um, in and out of like halfway homes and uh, other types of um, custodial situations, and you know maybe you know he's living at, or maybe he or she's living at home 
and they're you know they're starting to engage in some petty crime and get running with kids that are a bit uh, problematic. The schooling is falling off. They went from being an A student to a D student. Um, you know, there's all these different signs that this is somebody that's potentially in trouble. Well, there's a whole brand of upstream interventions now where that are called things like situation tables and hub models, where police, um, social work, uh, educators, and so on all get together, sit around, talk about how um, they're, they have a list of people that, you know, the, 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 typically, by the way, it's the police that have flagged these, these people as, you know, potentially needing upstream services to remove them from the criminal justice system into, uh, into some type of uh, housing, mental health, uh, other types of treatment. In, in theory, fantastic. In reality, we actually don't have any outcome uh, research that shows that this works. What do I mean by outcome? The outcome of this type of intervention is to improve the life of this individual to help them build up a stronger foundation for success in whatever they're, you know, in non and in, in non-criminal success, right? That's the goal is that is, you know, if you've got somebody who's got mental health issues, who's got addiction issues, who's got criminal activity, is having trouble finding housing and a job an out, successful outcome for them would resolve those issues. So we come back two or three years later and we go, wow, fantastic, you got a job, you got a stable relationship, you know, you're doing well, you're talking about going back to school, fantastic. But really, we don't have that research. What we have is research on outputs. Outputs are, are things that don't actually affect materially the life of this person. They don't change the outcome for this person. What they do is they improve the lists for the different uh, groups that are at the table. What am I saying? So if somebody is no longer appearing in crime stats, the police count that output. We've measured, we, we have sent the file to social services that is an output, that's transferring the file, output, great. We successfully did that. And we might say, well, they're no longer appearing in our crime stats, so that's fantastic, so we could call that another output. But the reality is the reason why that person might not be showing up in your stats is they might have died. They might have left the country. They might have left the province. They just might not have been caught doing something. Like you don't actually know until unless you do evaluate uh, outcome evaluation work that your program actually works. Maybe all you did was just shuffle the papers around. That's the difference when I talk about outputs versus outcomes. And this is what a realist approach focuses on. It focuses on these types of distinctions and says, guess what? Output research, not good enough. So for example, um, Here's another instance I see all the time. Program X worked in Cincinnati. So there's this belief that it will work in London, Ontario. We call that, by the way, um, so the idea of shifting, um, shifting a policy from one place to another is called policy transfer. And when we think that because something worked in New York or Cincinnati or Las Vegas, that it will suddenly work in Moose Jaw, we call that naive policy transfer. Why do we call that naive? Because if you 
uh, it's this belief that, you know, because something worked in A, it'll work everywhere. Well, guess what? Moose Jaw is not Las Vegas. I don't know if anybody here is aware of that, but it is not the same thing. The resources will be different. The environment is different. The population demographics are different. The laws are different. The health care um, setting is different. Like I could go on and on and on. So oftentimes what happens is, and especially when, this is Pawson's argument, when you don't really understand why something works, you're much more likely to engage in naive policy transfer. And then guess what? It fails when you implement it somewhere else. The question of how things work needs to be focused on, Pawson argues. Um, first of all, patterns. That is the total evidence base. We need to not just look at what worked, but we have to also look at what didn't work, what was somewhat successful, and why. And to understand these patterns, we have to consider the mechanism, as I say, I keep saying, the mechanisms, the causal mechanisms, and the context. What resources were available? What were the political supports for the program? Um, was there community buy-in if it's a community-based project? Was it some sectors? This is very common in this type of work. You'll cherry pick, you'll see people cherry pick some segments of the community, but not others, and then wonder why a program failed. So what for this for sociologists who love theory, you'll be happy to hear that Pawson is one of those people and says to do a good uh, intervention, you have to have a theory of how things work and why they work. So mechanisms, these are the key elements that generate the change desired, our theoretical causal explanation. So for example, I am actually clutching my mug of caffeine, my beloved caffeine. I drink coffee, I get more productive. What's the mechanism? It's caffeine. And guess what? A lot of other people get super productive when they drink caffeine too. So maybe there is something to this. And now on that note, I'm going to take a slug of caffeine so I can get productive. Mm. Love, love the dark brown black elixir. Contacts. All social interventions operate, as I say, within social, political, economic, and other spheres or contexts. To give you a funny example, and again, I'm a criminologist, so most of my examples are going to be from criminology. Sorry, it, um, that's just how it goes. I will try to vary it up, though, whenever I remember something about health or some other context, I'll throw that in, too. But one of the funniest examples of an intervention, not not taking into account um, local context was the implementation of body-worn cameras in Edmonton. So police officers were outfitted with body-worn cameras and, you know, because, hey, this these cameras work fantastic in Las Vegas and Maryland and whatever, whatever, and produced, well, actually, they produced mixed results mainly focused on um, complaints against police being reduced but anyway I digress but here's the thing so they implement these cameras in Edmonton small problem Edmonton is freaking cold I don't know if you've ever been there I was once in Edmonton when it was minus 30 I was told not to leave my hotel I walked two blocks to the local chapters to get uh, coffee and a book by the time I got back to my hotel I had 
basically I had, I had caused skin damage to the extent that a layer of skin peeled off. That's how freaking cold it was. Where am I going with this? We implement these cameras. Police officers are outside all the time in Edmonton. The cameras froze. So it is not just social, political, and economic spheres. It can also be environmental, geographic, and so on spheres. Contexts, as I say, have said, keep repeating myself here because it's important, also include the resources as well as the limitations and roadblocks that might limit the success of an intervention. A lot of great programs are created by a couple people and then those people leave and the new people come in, not as invested, the program dies. And that is, you know, the, the continued success of a program. The reason why we track is because of things like that. So Pawson says that we need to understand the four L's, four contextual layers. Um, the first one is infrastructural system. Does, and what it, that's like a big fancy term for, does the intervention have political backing? Does it have public support? Are the resources there to ensure that the goals of the program, the outcomes, are being met? The second L, or the second layer, I said L's, I don't know, like obviously it is too early, hang on, I need more coffee. It's not L's, it's four I's, duh. Ah, there we go. So the second I is institutional. See, if I was clever, I would just edit this out so you wouldn't know I had made a mistake. But I'm, I'm, I'm clever, but I'm just lazy, as I always say. Okay, so the second I is institutional setting. Does the institutional culture of the organization or institution support such an initiative? I've worked for five, six years on police reform. And... I, people, you know, it's really interesting. People oft, uh, people with no understanding of policing think it's this monolithic culture in which all police are all alike. But actually, each police service has its own unique institutional culture. And some share certain similarities and some, you know, it's like one extreme to the other. Um, same as universities. I am at Western, which as a fairly conservative, business-oriented, med-type school, and uh, you compare that to, say, York, which is much more uh, critical theory, um, social justice, and so on. And so, but anybody that would argue that university is one particular institutional setting or one particular monoculture is crazy because that is not the case. And so we have to pay attention to things like the, not just the cultures of institutions, but also the individual cultures of different agencies, groups, and so on. The third I, not L, is interpersonal relationships. One of the things that we don't, and I've mentioned this before, oftentimes the success of a program policy or practice is down to individual people and their ability to mobilize resources and support across different groups through interpersonal relationships. A lot of what I did in my policy-oriented work was build um, different alliances, if you will, with, with groups. And in the early days of building those alliances, we created a structure and we created a formalized alliance. 
And then I discovered that that actually didn't necessarily work for the type of work that I was doing. And then we moved to a much more flexible, dynamic approach. Um, but we were able to, in which we would come up with a specific goal and we would reach out to a agency with which we had interpersonal relationships and we'd say, hey, are you interested in working with us on this? They say yes or no. And that's how we did it. And that was because, over, like I said, over a period of several years, I was able to, myself and my colleagues, were able to build up those relationships who were built on mutual respect and mutual trust. And when you have them, it, it is super helpful. The example, um, in terms of thinking about this, there's a theory called nodal governance theory. Uh, it comes out of the work of Manuel Castells in, in the Information Society. And nodal governance is this idea that you use a network to achieve an outcome or a goal. So, for example, if I, want, uh, if, um, I wanted to create an after-school program for at-risk youth, what would I do? I would build a network of resources uh, through interpersonal relationships with different actors in the community, different actors in education, might bring in, um, you know, school liaison officers. I might bring in whoever to identify kids that might potentially benefit for the, from the program. Who knows? But anyway, the, the clearly I know nothing about children, so, but this is, you know, hypothetical. The point of this is, that the first people I would reach out to are the ones that I already trust and have respect for because I that will be my nuclei. They will be, in nodal governance theory, nodes. A node is just um, it's a group. It's a collection of actors that have some type of commonality. So, for example, the Thames Valley School Board might be a node in my research network. Within that network, you have what are called rowers and steers. Rowers are people that do the work, help get, help mobilize resources, help do the work, help identify new opportunities. And steers are those groups that have the most power and say within the network that sort of direct where the activity is going to take place. You can do that through non interpersonal relationships, but I typically find that that is a real potentially problematic thing to do because you're relying on the success of your program with on people that you've never worked with, you don't know, and there's always a possibility of uh, conflicts in agenda. That's why it's always good to start, as I say, to start out with a nucleus of people that have common goals, common values, and common language that you, as I say, built up some, some level of mutual trust. And the fourth I, individual capacities. Key actors have to have motivation, the skills, and the credibility to drive an intervention forward. Those steerers have to be able to motivate, engage, I'm doing big hand gestures that you can't see right now. I don't know why I'm doing them. But they have to be able to convince people to jump on and to dedicate time, uh, to resources, other types of commitments to the eventual success of this 
endeavor, whatever this is going to be. So those are the four L's that Pawson talks about. Anyone who is interested in influencing public policy has to recognize that you are necessarily arguing for a form of a social intervention. And a social intervention, simply put, is a strategy that's intended to change a social condition, hopefully for the better. Whether that is reducing the risks of smoking, prisoner reentry programs, recreational planning for elderly citizens, you, as an individual researcher, and this is where I'm going when I talk about networks, as an individual researcher, there's so much that you can do as an individual. But as an individual who is working as part of a network or steer, whether that's a rower or a steer, it is important to understand that what you are actually talking about isn't just a simple policy change. It is actually a social intervention that has implications for people, for outcomes. Pawson says, in order, to, you, in order to understand an intervention, there are seven key elements that you have to take on board. First of all, interventions are theories. This goes back to what I said to you before about thinking through the causal explanations for why something works, how it could work, how it doesn't work, how it might work. You have to have, understand that relationship. The second element is interventions are active. You are acting on or through people. Whether you are thinking that you are just doing this as an individual outside of a network or not, the reality is you have to at some level rely on other people to help carry the intervention forward. Whether or not that's policymakers actually following through, whether or not that's people on the ground doing what they're supposed to be doing. It is a human endeavor, which means it is fraught with problems. Mistakes can happen. Um, competing uh, agendas might be going on. Um, you know, work factors, like, you know, some somebody who you might be relying on can only um, work on this off the corner of their desk, right? The, it is, it is not ever straightforward. It is always sticky and messy like the enterprise of research. Number three, intervention chains are long and thickly populated. What does that mean? Go back to my network analogy. It means many people can be involved in the development, refinement, or, and or revision of an intervention. From program creators to community partners to other agencies to policymakers. You might get to a point where policymakers are listening to you, they're taking on board what you're saying, but then the final product looks like nothing, like what you thought it was going to look like, or has some changes that you weren't prepared for. Why? Because those policymakers are also listening to other people at the same time. Number four, intervention chains are nonlinear and sometimes go into reverse. In other words, an intervention can be top down, so an agency or an institution is driving it, or it can be bottom up or any combination thereof. Again, it is a sticky, messy process with change, 
you know, it might be the case where a boss uh, of an institution says, okay, we're going to make this change uh, to this practice, um, this policy internally, and then finds out, oh, it doesn't work, and then it gets fed information from the bottom up, well, we have to change this, and then the middle managers get involved. You see what I'm saying. Number five, interventions are embedded in multiple social systems. The reality is nothing is, as social creatures, nothing is cut and dried. If you take the examples of, for example, uh, blah, 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 hang on, caffeine. Mm. It helps my, my mouth sometimes gets faster than my brain, or my brain gets faster than my mouth. Not quite sure which, but anyway. If you take the example of smoking prevention programs or elderly um, recreational programs, these types of initiatives can cross all sorts of institutional and other boundaries. Most social interventions, especially the ones that we care about, are complex in issues that are interconnected across a whole bunch of different domains of knowledge and practice. So. Again, go back to my example of the after-school youth program, which cuts a, potentially cuts across social work, family systems, education systems, potentially police systems. I mean, it starts to get complicated, and um, we have to recognize that. Interventions are leaky, this is number six, interventions are leaky and prone to be borrowed. This is what we call that again, that uh, policy transfer. What do I mean by that? Programs and practices can be modified on the ground, borrowed and changed at will. So, uh, you know, we've got a program that, uh, you know, we got an anti-gang um, program in Chicago, which, you know, works fantastic in Chicago, decide to move it to Toronto, but then they go, well, wait a sec, we don't have this issue, but we have that issue, and we have to think about that, and we have to think about this other thing. So, no program that is moved, or no policy or practice that is moved is typically um, imported wholesale and when it is we get naive policy transfer and failure. Uh, number seven, interventions are open systems and change the conditions that make them work in the first place. What does that mean? You'll go back to Sherman's three T's and tracking. What ha can happen over time is when you intervene in something you cause both intended and unintended consequences. And sometimes these things are great because that's what you intended and sometimes they're accidentally great. But other times an intervention can have what we call a backfire effect. So you go out, you do something, you say, oh, this is fantastic. And then all of a sudden, whoa, wait a sec, this other thing's happening and it, this is terrible. So let me give you an example. CCTV cameras can create displacement effects. So you put a CCTV camera outside my house, I'm not probably not going to be doing too much crime outside my house. Um, but over time, what we've discovered in the UK is that people ignore them. Oftentimes, by the way, people who ignore them are, especially I'm thinking in the UK, you see these videos of people actually climbing the CCTV tower to mug in front of the camera before they do something stupid. I've actually seen footage like that. It's crazy. What it, what's the issue? They're drunk. Um, so the cameras don't have a great effect 
cameras are based on this rational, um, this view of people as rational actors that won't commit crimes in front of them, unless you're drunk, in which case you're not super rational, let's be clear. So that is a um, displacement effect is actually something that, believe it or not, is an intended consequence. Let's disperse the crime. Uh, but people ignoring them and committing the crime there anyway is an un unintended or backfire effect. My favorite example of a backfire effect is something called Officer Scarecrow. A colleague of mine at Simon Fraser runs these um, police uh, traffic safety initiatives in which he has a cardboard cutout of a police officer with a ra uh, radar gun. And um, what they did was they put Officer Scarecrow out to see whether or not, and they monitored it, see whether or not the image of a traffic officer with a radar gun reduced motorist speeding. Well, it had an unintended backfire effect because people realized it was a cutout and they stole Officer Scarecrow. So first they stole him, then um, they tried to chain, they chained him, chained Officer Scarecrow to a lamp stander, and then people used bolt cutters and stole him. Then they, then the last I heard, I think they were doing some sort of other thing where they were trying to like stick him in the concrete. I don't know, but the bottom line was they, the this was a backfire effect. So they actually, Officer Scarecrow actually encouraged crime unintended, un, unintendedly, unintentionally because. Um, that wasn't the point. And on that note, I am done. It is caffeine time. So thanks for joining me. I'll catch you on the flip side.